we tell stories that engage, inspire, and have a lasting impact? How do we turn thoughts and ideas into effective and authentic storytelling? How can we use stories to make a difference in our work, lives, and communities? I'm your host, Camille DePutter, and together we'll explore what it means to tell stories with heart. Okay, I'm Camille DePutter, and welcome again to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. With me here today is Megan DePutter. Megan DePutter is an organizational development consultant at London Health Sciences Centre in London, Ontario, Canada. Megan develops initiatives to support the retention of leaders and provides solutions-focused coaching, training, and support to healthcare leaders themselves. She has over 20 years of experience in learning and development for healthcare and nonprofit organizations. Seven of these years were in the field of HIV and AIDS, where Megan's passion truly lies. It includes experience working in Scotland. Megan is a certified crucial learning instructor and helps people get to dialogue when the stakes are high. She's also my identical twin sister (laughs) and someone I look up to very much. Megan, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. The feeling is mutual, by the way, about looking up to you. (laughs) Thank you. Well, I'm excited to have you on because you've spent a lot of years in helping to change culture in different way, helping people lead better and challenging us to think about the stories we tell, the assumptions we make, how we communicate with each other. So I see you as a a storyteller in all different kinds of forms, and I would love to just explore a few different aspects of your work, your passion, and your experience today. It sounds great. Awesome. Well, I guess maybe one good place to start is on this topic of changing culture within organizations. And so in your bio, it says that you're an organizational development consultant. Can you just tell me a little bit about what that means? What what does that coaching and training kind of look like? What is it that you strive to do? Sure. So, I mean, organizational development looks so different across all kinds of organizations. And I'm going to skip over the question of trying to, trying to define what that role actually means. I can share what I do and what I love about my work. Um, really, a lot of the work that we're doing right now is trying to support our leaders who are going through a very difficult time in healthcare. Um, it's a difficult time for everybody who's working in healthcare, no matter no matter the role. Um, but it's a, it's a tough spot to be in, and there's a lot of change. There's a very rapid pace of change, and um, there's a lot of transition. So one of my roles is to support leaders throughout that, um, hoping that we can can retain people um, to help create you know po- positive change throughout the organization. One of the pieces that I work on that I really enjoy to that end is supporting our leaders in their assertiveness. And the intention with that is to help to create better workplace experiences for themselves, staff, um, but also to create culture change within the organization. And when I talk about assertiveness, I'm really talking about the ability to speak openly, clearly, directly while being respectful and professional. So having a balance of a recognition for and appreciation of 
my needs and feelings and the needs of feelings of somebody else in a nutshell and helping leaders to do that in really effective ways around stepping up to tough conversations with staff, but also with leader colleagues um, or for their leaders, physicians, um, negotiating priorities, timelines, boundaries, protecting their own boundaries, delegating. There's lots of ways that this can show up, but we know that assertiveness is really foundational for leader success. And I think all of us have an opportunity to to build those skills and flex that muscle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's so interesting because I think it's something that is is really at the heart of so much storytelling as well, because I, I know that when we look at the different kinds of storytelling that we might do within an organization, so you might write, you know, you might try to communicate ideas in different ways. You might want to try to get people on your side of an idea or, you know, something where you're sort of trying to persuade folks or get buy-in. You're trying to contribute and share your own ideas and perspective, but you also want to hear other people. You want to, you know, include others and so on. But so there's always, it seems like a bit of a tension around like, where's the balance of putting my ideas forward, expressing myself and my perspective, but then also hearing others and delivering it in such a way that people are going to actually be able to hear it and receive it. Are there any things that you've learned on that front that that you would share or, you know, something that has um, changed the way that you communicate in that regard? Oh, totally. So, I mean, there's so much, you know, we usually start from this place of how can I convince somebody to do X or how can I motivate them to do X or I know what the problem is. They just need to do it and they need to understand my perspective. So there's so much focus on me. I, this is what I want to, you know, this, this is what I want to change or um, communicate. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned is the importance of stepping back and asking questions and recognizing that even if you go into a conversation and you think you've got that whole um, complete uh, (laughs) puzzle, like a completed puzzle in front of you, you've probably only got a few pieces, Hmm. right? And it's really your job to actually try to complete as much of that puzzle as you can. So by trying to ask questions in a way that does not spark defensiveness is likely going to give you really what is essential information that you, you know, that you didn't otherwise have. And you're going to build um, the trust and and, and build the relationship um, through listening and asking questions and, and being present to that in a way that is going to be, it's likely going to behoove you of your ultimate goal and in a way that you wouldn't likely accomplish without doing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that so much. And I can definitely see that in in my work as well. And in talking about storytelling, trying to encourage folks to get curious to write, like, ultimately, who is this going to? Who's the reader that you want to connect with? And what's going on in their, their head? What do they need? Um, and I love what you said as well about that developing those relationships. And it's not just about the thing that you're trying to say. <laughs> You can hear Iggy, my cat, yowling in the background. I'm going to have to let her into the room. She has something to say. (laughs) Okay. One second. 
Okay, so the cat has been let back into the room. She's had her, she's been heard. (laughs) (laughs) She feels heard and welcomed. Um, But yeah, thanks. That's really awesome um, to hear about, Meg. Um, I'm wondering if there's more that you would want to to add or share to that in, in respect to facilitating and educating people in particular, because you've been a facilitator and and led workshops and trainings and things for your whole career, just in different capacities. And I know that um, likely some of our, our listeners will be um, also trying to, you know, trying to train or change or express presentations or, you know, share presentations and things where, they're they're trying to help people understand um or maybe even like more radical change to help people change or evolve their beliefs or under come to understand something new and different um so you've already given us some some great tips in that sense about you know asking questions and and sort of being open is there anything more that you would say on this front of kind of from the training and educating perspective Yeah, there's a lot more that I could say on it. I mean, one thing that I will start with in terms of the training facilitation is the importance of really knowing your audience and and starting from that place. So I love, you know, what Nancy Duarte said. She's got these seven questions um, that you should be asking about your audience. And one is, what keeps your audience up at night? And I love that question because it's thinking about what is important to them. And usually when we show up at a, whether it's a conversation or whether it's a training, we show up with, here's my agenda. Here's what I want to do, right? Even with the design phase, I think starting from the perspective, and I can use my own experience, you know, in the HIV sector, here's here's what I want to change. Here's what I want people to do differently. I show up with what I want. And it's not always what your audience wants to learn. Um, I can recall a big mistake that I made when I was working at Terence Higgins Trust Scotland. Uh, I was running the learning center. I partnered with uh, a, an organization that was uh, supporting uh, supporting people with Alzheimer's. And together we worked on, and we put together a workshop on sexual health and um, and I think it was around sexual health and, and dementia. Um, and, you know, we started that course from the place of, oh, here's what expertise I can share. Here's what expertise you can share. You know, this is what we would like to present. This is our agenda. Let's go forth. And um, I'd had lots of success in my training, but that in particular, that workshop was one of the ones, well, it was really the, the lowest sort of rated ones in terms of the evaluation that I'd done. Um, But it was a great learning experience for me because I hadn't put enough time to thinking about what problem does our audience want to solve, right? Like forget what problem you want to solve. Why are they showing up? What is the problem that's keeping them up at night? And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to solve that problem for them. I mean, in this case, you know, having some kind of uh, algorithm of what to do when somebody with dementia gets into a sexual relationship with someone else and the complexities around that. It's not something we'd be able to solve, but we probably would have approached differently. So I, first of all, just take a step back and ask, you know, what what do they, what's, what's really important to them? What are the problems that they're showing up with that they're looking to solve? Can I, 
I get some further closure on this anecdote. <laughs> so, uh, can you can you tell me a little bit more? I'm just curious now. What was the the assumption that you had made, and what they were actually hoping to get out of the workshop? So, I think what our participants were hoping to get out of the workshop is that when you've got care providers, say in a care home, with um, residents who have dementia, and sometimes they are going to have sexual relationships with other residents. And um, there's some complexities around this. So some of the uh, children of that parent may be concerned with that. It might be that that person is still married. It might be that they feel that there's they're presenting certain risks with this person having a sexual relationship, that they might have ethical issues around it. Um, they may be uncomfortable. They may not want to have these kinds of conversations. The care providers are probably wanting to know what their responsibilities are and how they navigate these kinds of conversations and how to make decisions around them. Um, and where we, where I was coming from was that we're seeing an increase in sexually transmitted infections um, among an old, much older population that we that we may have seen before. People are living longer lives. Um, you know, their maybe relationships are ending and they're getting into new relationships. So what we're seeing is an increase in STIs and risk opportunity for transmission of STIs as well as HIV. And on my agenda, I'm wanting to raise awareness of this so that we can have open conversations about older adults having sex, which is some, you know, it's kind of taboo, to be honest with you. So we need to be having these conversations and also talking about how we can support them to have safer sex, right? Because that's what's on my agenda. My agenda is very sex positive, want to support older adults and having and enjoying sex. Um, but in doing so safely, recognizing that, look, even if pregnancy is not something to be concerned with, let's still talk about condoms and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I can't remember exactly what we what what we provided in that, but there was some kind of disconnect there. Right. And so did that, what was the takeaway from that for you then? What specifically would you have done differently? I would have action mapped it and I would have gone to, um, so action mapping is something that I've learned at LHSC, London Health Sciences Center. And it's, uh, there's a great book by Kathy Moore and she is the thought leader on this, on this subject really, and literally wrote the book on action mapping. And the idea is really simple. Before you design a course, stop and say, what do I want to change? What do I specifically want people to do differently back on the job that's going to facilitate that change? And then start looking at what practice opportunities can I provide participants because we know that people are going to learn by by actually doing and engaging. And then really what's the minimum amount of information that I need to provide in order to facilitate that practice activity. So if I'd done the action mapping, I probably would have approached it. And also that empathy mapping, right? The audience analysis and empathy mapping and thinking about who are we targeting with this course? Who's going to show up? And what do they want to learn about? And like, let's look more carefully about our delivery and how it's 
mapping to their needs. I love that. I mean, this is so, this is really useful. I think you're providing really kind of a great template or a couple of templates here that people can use because also for any listeners who are going to be looking at creating their own course, their own certification product, their own um, workshop or kind of seminar series or sort of other educational type resource, I think that's really useful. And those are some great key questions that even if you're not following following a full, um, you know, the full action map, just asking yourself those questions can help you create a better product and probably a better experience for your your readers, your students, your participants, your audience. Yeah, I mean, anytime when I it it's amazing the way that it shifts your focus when you ask, what do I want to change and what do I want people to do differently on the job? I'll guarantee you that you're going to include different. <laughs> different content versus just jumping into it and saying, Hey, this is what I want to put on my put out here. Right. Yeah. And while you're speaking in this context to people on the job, I mean, this might be if we want to change another aspect of culture as well, if we want people to think differently about something, approach an issue differently. Um, So, you know, again, for, for folks who are wanting to tell better stories, I think it's really useful to go back to what kind of change do you want to make? What do you hope that people will do differently? Um, And I think actually that leads well into maybe getting a little bit more into your work in HIV AIDS, because I would love to hear a bit about the changes that you have seen taken place in um, you know, the, the HIV AIDS space, maybe what some of those um, changes that, you know, you wanted to see back when you were involved, um, you know, earlier in your career in that space. Um, and yeah, I just love to hear a bit about like how that culture has changed, what you've seen, what some of the, the goals for progress have been in your opinion. Yeah, so that's a perfect segue. And I was thinking the same thing that really links up with, you know, work in HIV, wanting to, because really a big thing that we want to change in HIV and still are working at it is challenging stigma, right? So trying to reduce the stigma around HIV, um, trying to change sort of attitudes and mentalities towards people living with HIV, and again, reduce that stigma. And also for healthcare practitioners, there are specific things that we're hoping that they will do differently also relating to, you know, minimizing that, that stigma and having a, a better foundation of current knowledge as it pertains to HIV transmission today so that they don't inadvertently, you know, discriminate or, um, or, or cause harm really to, to people with HIV. So, you know, there's been lots of changes over the past 20 years, but I think one of the most exciting ones And the one that I think is most interesting in terms of cultural change and telling stories and um, and messaging is around U equals U, which is which is untransmittable. uh, Sorry, which is undetectable equals untransmittable. Yes, enter um, sound effect fireworks cue. (laughs) Yeah. So for those who for those listeners who are unfamiliar. Um, when somebody with HIV uh, goes on treatment, and our treatments today are, you know, it's it's just a far cry from what they were, right? It's one pill a day, or in some term, some cases, 
um, long-lasting injectables. You may have one shot that could last three months, for example, with, with all the, the medicine that you need for that period. But as somebody uh, takes their medicine as as provided, their treatment, their HIV therapy as, as uh, instructed, um, barring any unusual, unique circumstances, they will have uh, they will pretty quickly obtain what's called an undetectable viral load. And, you know, our, unfortunately in HIV, our, the wording that we have, it comes from medical science, not words that mean things the way that we use them in our day-to-day kind of layperson speak. So um, undetectable really means that it the the amount of HIV in the blood that's drawn in a, in a particular test is so low that it's actually undetectable on on that test doesn't mean that it's gone still there just in very tiny little quantities um, but for all intents and purposes the HIV is you know fully it's fully suppressed it's not multiplying in the body and it's not causing harm to the body Right, so being uh, undetectable is the goal of treatment for somebody's health. So you can live a long, healthy life. You're not going to see um, really health concerns crop up because of your HIV. But also, what we've learned is that when someone is virally suppressed, they're, they're on treatment, treatment successful, um, they're not going to be transmitting HIV through sex. So, um, so. We'll just kind of, we'll sort of start there with with that message, but obviously the implications are huge, right? So questions come up around, okay, can people with HIV um, safely have have unprotected sex with partners, right? And and certainly the message um, or the conclusion of that is is yes. Um, Can people with HIV safely have, have children, have relationships, have um ha- have sex with 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 anybody right can just have an active healthy sex life um so really it has great like positive outcomes for people with hiv in in terms of their ability to um to live their lives with joy and satisfaction and pleasure um, while also having that double benefit of not um, infecting anybody else. And so it's a strategy to contain um, the spread of the virus as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, amazing and so and so powerful and changes your own internal narrative too, potentially as well, right? Because if you're carrying around this internalized stigma of I could harm someone else, I could have this, you know, negative effect on somebody else's life. I'm dangerous. That gets into your your soul, your own understanding of yourself and how you live your life. And so challenging this stigma inside and out, you, you equals you is such an important message. But it's been really challenging to get it out there. Can you tell me a bit about, you know, why it has been, why it's been hard and because I think this is such a great case study in terms of how do we actually change culture, change the the dominant narrative and understanding and belief to the point that we as, you know, as societies can actually start to do things differently and understand things differently. 
Yeah. So I think there's like three different narratives. Um, there's the one going on in the heads of people living with HIV. And I think about the change that's occurred. You know, when I, I, my colleagues and I did some, did some community-based research, our paper was called uh, Show Me the Love. And that was based in the HIV AIDS organization that I was working for at the time, um, based in Guelph, Ontario. And our participants were interviewed about, you know, their relationships or sexual relationships and whether or not they were they were deciding to get into intimate relationships or not. And we know that for people with HIV, a, a huge fear, in some cases, the greatest, most pressing fear is the fear of infecting someone else. So you're right. There's a great weight of fear associated with that. And um, many people making decisions not to get into relationships as a, a great cost to themselves um, for that fear. So the one is kind of transitioning through that fear, that trauma, um, particularly, you know, if you're a long-term survivor, um, going through some of some of that to a different story that you can tell yourself that, you know, I, I am, I'm safe and I'm, I'm not harming somebody else. The other story or narrative is around community. People with HIV are not a threat. There's no need for stigma. There's no need for discrimination. They will not transmit the virus to you because this is where a lot of this sort of stigma and hate is coming from, right? This, this fear. And then the third narrative, which I personally find the most interesting and that I think is the best of this case study that we're talking about is from healthcare practitioners, right? And I think that's where they, the, the overall um, supporters of this message likely face the most resistance. And this comes back to, I think, again, the question of, knowing your audience, what are they concerned with? What's on their agenda? Or as Nancy Duarte says, what keeps them up at night? And I think what we encountered was a lot of fear that if I tell somebody it's safe to go and have unprotected sex, because this is really what we're talking about. If I tell them that they will not transmit the virus through unprotected sex and they go out and they have unprotected sex and they transmit HIV and it's one of a thousand cases, but it happens. That's, that's on me, my organization. That's, this is our liability. And so they're viewing it through a risk, the risk lens. And I think, you know, Camille, you should invite uh, Bruce Richmond to come on and talk about prevention access campaign mm -hmm. and all the work that they did and how, how they broke through that. I think a big piece of it was, you know, once they had some of the big players in HIV that are really evidence-based. Terrence Tickens Trust, by the way, was one of them to have our chief medical officers state that U equals U um, very confidently, publicly, um, that that was helpful. What I thought was really interesting with this was that we needed to change the language. And I mean, we as in healthcare providers and, um, you know, organizations coming from, from that side of things, to change the language that we use around risk, language that makes sense to us in our field, modify it so that it fits the layperson. Because a lot of the argument was around the words of, you know, cannot or will not transmit. 
So there was language being used like, um, you know, there's a very small risk, right? Like Mm -hmm. there is a negligible risk. That's a term we use for a long time. Negligible. We had a whole Mm -hmm. war over the word negligible because in healthcare, right? Based on medical science, we're thinking we can't eliminate the, the impossible, mm-hmm. right? We can't say, or we can't eliminate the, a, a risk altogether is what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, when you use that kind of language with the general public who, who, who doesn't have the same sort of background in medical science and the way things work and the language that's used, what do you hear? You, you hear risk. Yeah. You hear dumb and dumber. So you're saying I have a chance. I used that clip in my training. (laughs) I used that clip. Yeah. Yeah. That's what people hear, right? You're saying I have a chance. It might be a chance in a hundred thousand, but you're saying I have a chance. And so I think there was a lot of dialogue around what do we really mean? What is that chance? What does it really look like? Is there a chance? Mm Mm-hmm. Or is it just that we can't say that there's not a chance? Mm-hmm. And I likened, uh, at the time I wrote a blog post, um, which was, you know, I likened it to uh, health promotion activities. Like, let's look at what, how, let's look at what um, our public health messages are. They promote exercise. Let's say mm-hmm. they promote taking a walk. There are risks that can happen on the walk, mm-hmm. right? There are extreme ways in which people have, random ways in which people have died on a walk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we say there's a negligible chance of getting eaten by a lion that's escaped from the local view on your walk? No. <laughs> We say it's safe and healthy to do this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's shifting from talking about risk to, you know, talking about what's, what's, you know, what is, what is kind of a, a reasonable expectation and also what's important to us, right? It's important to us that we have happy, healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what you're saying here um, because it's very easy to get caught up in our own perspective and what we see. And in so doing, forgetting about what the other person is is seeing or thinking. And, and I love how you get specifically into, well, what language are they using and what do these words mean to them? I mean, I, I've seen this in, you know, the health and fitness industry, for example, where a lot of your language may be more technical um, and you might know, have a different understanding of of certain terms. But if that's not the language that you, your clients are using, then it's not going to help you much. Like you might know that phoning muscle isn't a thing, but if people want to to tone their muscle and, you know, I don't want to encourage people to sell something you can't provide, but if a client walks into your gym and asks you for that, are you just going to like laugh in their face and say, that's not a thing? 
Um, or, or are you going to have a conversation with them and say maybe, okay, well, what do you mean by that? How do you want to look? What are you actually looking for? What, what might those goals be? Um, I also had, um, a client of mine once, um, told Molly Galbraith told me an anecdote, um, when she was a young coach working with someone and, um, she was telling her to do a glute bridge or something like that and kind of demonstrated how she would lift her bum up. And so the woman said, oh, glutes are your butt. Like all this time you've been referring to glutes. I didn't know what it meant. And I was afraid to ask. And so it's so easy and natural once we know these things to assume them. But one thing that you can do also just in general to make your writing more persuasive, um, more effective, to connect with people more deeply, as well as to get into the deeper kinds of change that you've been talking about is definitely to think about, well, what words are they using for this? What exact questions are they asking? How do they phrase it? Because it's so easy for us to jump to conclusions as well, right? And go, okay, um, yeah, this is, you know, I, this is what came into my head, or this is my interpretation of what they said. But what did they actually say? If you can capture that, it's immediately going to be more effective. I like how we just took a breath at um, the exact same time. I, I have something else I could say, but I'm <laughs> interested in what you're going to say next. What you're going to ask next. I know, I'll pause and let you go ahead. I would just add that you know, the, the assumptions that we make, this is a big learning that I've had over the last few years of all of the assumptions that I make. And in terms of working with leaders, you know, and it, we talk about stories, a lot of it is, is around helping people, especially leaders, pause and unpack um, what, what assumptions am I making and how, instead of plunging forward, can I pause and ask some really open questions to get some more information? So we all come into these conversations. We make assumptions super quickly, right? And so having some really key, I like to call them kind of hip pocket questions that you can pull out to slow yourself down and challenge your brain that is thinking, Immediately, you've got everything. Because it's also very easy to ask one question. You get a little bit more. And then you think you're done. Oh, I know what's going on now. I got it. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really hard to do. Like, I, I appreciate that you use the language, slow it down. Because it can be, you know, I've definitely had conversations where I've thought afterwards, oh, I should have asked more questions or or tested these certain assumptions that I made. Um, how do you train yourself to do that? Or perhaps you already answered it by referring to those hip pocket questions. Do you have a bit of a checklist or questions that you always make sure you ask? What, is, what kind of a process do you use there? Or is it just practice? For me, it's thinking about in advance, what kind of questions would be helpful and that might look different for me versus the leaders that I support, but getting some clarity around, oh, what, what might this one look like? And then you test them out and you try them out and, it, and you become more and more practiced. So an example of a question I used it today was, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about that? And um, so nice open, I think nice open questions, right? Like, and ones that aren't going to 
increased defensiveness. If you say something like, why do you think that, <laughs> right? The person's immediately going to be put on the defensive. If you say something like, oh, okay, I'm, you know, curious to learn a little bit more. Can you, can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Or do you mind sort of elaborating or, um, you know, oh, sometimes I like to ask for examples to really understand, you know, oh, did you have a scenario where this happened recently? Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, but these, these, you know, can you, can you help me? Um, can you, can you provide a little bit more information? Can you help me understand that, that point just a little bit more? Um, right. So finding a few of these little phrases or questions that are wide open and invite people can, can fill in as as much as they want um and then after that it it's practice there's lots of times when i walk away from a conversation and think oh you know <laughs> i ran my mouth too much i should have asked some more questions but it does become habitual for for any anyone who's trying to get better at it i would think of you know encourage you to think of two or three questions that you could ask put them on a sticky on your desk and just practice even when you think you've got the information you need going back to that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love this. Those are some great questions. And I also love the advice of just having it on a a post-it note on your desk, especially since so many meetings and things are done online and over Zoom these days. So, you know, if it's somewhere where you're maybe going to be in conversation and you're kind of just looking down, glancing down and you see those questions right in your face, it it will help you. And I guess... I just want to emphasize this point too, because I really think it is a lifelong practice. And for anyone who wants to communicate better, who wants to become a thought leader, um, who wants to grow their business and build their audience, this practice of better understanding your audience is truly, I think, one of the best investments of your time and energy and is really productive and fruitful in all the communications that you're going to be doing with this group over the course of your career or lifetime. But it's also really rewarding because it allows you to understand better, right? It allows us to grow, to think better, to think more deeply. It can be very enlightening. Um, I know personally, it's, you know, when I first started my business, I was probably more hesitant to do that. I mean, you know, especially maybe when you're new at something and you really want to kind of prove yourself more or get settled in your expertise. Um, but, but as time goes on, the more and more, you know, curious that you're able to get for me that I've, the more time I've been able to spend with the people that I've wanted to work with and try to put myself in this position, the more rewarding that, it has been. And then the more you do it, the more it sort of opens up new avenues for curiosity. Like, oh, I wonder about this and I'd like to explore this. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have, I, you know, have that desire to prove myself. Um, you know, I'll be taking a busy leaders call. They're taking an hour with me. They've got a million fires to put out. I want to prove my, my value. And, what I find helpful is just asking as I as I ask these questions and it becomes less about me, more about them, that's when my natural kind of curiosity can start to emerge, you know, oh, you know, really genuinely wanting to understand. Um and I think the example that you that you shared earlier, um, 
you know, with the, with the coach and the client is a good one too. Um, because like asking, Oh, you know, with, with a tone muscle, for example, what, can you tell me more about what that would look like for you? This is something that I use as well, right? What would that look like for you? Or what would good look like for you? Um, as I start to probe with some of these questions, you know, what uh, paint me a picture of you on your best day, right? If you were able to rewind the tape and, and do this with an absolute perfection, what would it look like? It starts to give me a better and frankly, a different picture usually of what I might have imagined. Maybe we can segue now as we're getting closer to the end of our time into um, just a bit of your own story and experience. So, I mean, you've given some great examples here. I'm also curious about how your work has changed your story about yourself. Um, How has doing this kind of work changed you? Yeah. And I, you know, a lot of the, um, the strategies that I use in supporting leaders and supporting people in getting to dialogue come from uh, Crucial Learning, which is a company that delivers um, really high quality training, crucial conversations for mastering dialogue, crucial conversations for accountability. Um, It's just such quality content. And for me, I remember taking crucial conversations and being presented with what they call the fool's choice. The fool's choice is that we either challenge someone, right? In a, in a difficult conversation, we express ourselves. We say what's, what's happening that's, that's not sitting well. We share what's, what's wrong or what's bothering us in a way that creates conflict and confrontation and is disrespectful and is not um, received well. Right. So either we're we're kind of aggressive with it or we say nothing at all. And I had found myself often moving into this won't end well. Um, I can't say it in a I don't know how to say it in a in a really, you know, respectful and um way that's going to be received well. So my alternative is just to stay quiet. And I think that's one of the reasons why I love supporting leaders and staff with their assertiveness, because I can see for myself coming from a place of maybe being on the more passive end of the spectrum, um, how much it offers up opportunities for improved dialogue, improved relationships, or, you know, they say in the course, you can talk to almost anyone about almost anything. And it's, um, I love the potential and the opportunity that that has allowed. So I think for me, it's really shifted my focus in terms of what's possible in terms of speaking up. How can we do this in ways that is respectful, professional, supportive to others, and can accomplish both goals that we have about addressing the content and strengthening a relationship with that person. Mm-hmm. So for me, that really changed the way that I thought about myself in terms of my own assertiveness and capacity for assertiveness. There's opportunity everywhere. And, and after doing this course and focusing on, you know, the assertive communication and the challenging of assumptions and really focusing in this area for the last couple of years, it just illuminates to me how much we assume that we can't. And I say, you know, for myself and 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 for others, right? There's so many opportunities where we could actually have dialogue where we don't. 
We assume it's not safe to do so, so we just stay quiet. Um, or we make assumptions and we we don't we don't explore safely with others to to learn more. There's opportunities for growth in these two areas everywhere. That's really beautiful. That's such a great sentiment. And I hope folks take away from that also the message that you can share your thoughts and ideas and stories and the things that you care about most um, through dialogue, but also through your own writing and sharing of your work. Because I think for a lot of folks, um, we felt like, well, maybe it's not important. Or what if I say the wrong thing? Or what if someone is judging me, even with social media and so on? I know sometimes people feel paralyzed to put something out there, share something of themselves because they're afraid of what the reaction is going to be if they don't get it 100% right or they piss somebody off. And that's the other thing. I think being armed with, you know, if you can break it down, and think, what it, what is the risk? What am I really afraid of here? And then if that occurs, is there a way to mitigate that risk or mitigate that outcome? For me in the work that I do, you know, I think a real value is knowing how to apologize, right? So if you've offended someone or it didn't come off the way you intended, having some preparation for, okay, what, what, what will I do then? And that just creates a safe space, really, for yourself in a way to be able to vocalize more because you have that almost contingency plan, right? I It's okay. I'm going to step into this difficult conversation. I'm going to show up. And if I haven't got it right, I can own that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wonderful. Such an empowering and, and inspiring message. Thank you so much for everything that you have shared here. Is there any final words that you'd like to leave us with? And then I'm going to just throw you into a super quick little lightning round. Oh, great. Um, yeah, I would just say with any challenge, you know, with the solutions-focused coaching that I do that I find it helpful is to, to make it easy by breaking it into small parts, Right. Thinking about what's that challenge? How can I make it easy on myself? Want to ask more questions? What are a few questions that are that I just love that are accessible and, and, and usable in many situations and put it down? It's okay to slow down for a minute and think about what is this problem or challenge that, that I'm facing mm-hmm. and take a pause. Awesome. Thank you. Love it. Okay, so I thought I would try um, ending this with a little lightning round with a few short questions, and you can just answer whatever pops into your head. Okay. Ready? Okay. First one, what was your favorite book as a kid? There's a book called It's Like This Cat, and I don't remember who wrote it. It was a guy living near Coney Island hanging out with his cat. It's great. I remember that book. I loved it, too. If you were to write a book, what would it be about? I think it would be about these very simple things that you can do um, to help to help get to dialogue, to help have better, more effective conversations. Amazing. What is one popular belief or story in the world that you would like to change? Um, that I'm right. <laughs> And I don't mean just me, I'm right, but everybody sort of has this idea that I have this thought 
and therefore it must be right. And to challenge that and think, this is one perspective. What is one story about yourself that you would like to edit or rewrite? Um, I think the story around myself being kind of passive, right? And I am rewriting that story and using that story as a work, you know, when I, when I introduce my trainings I, on emotional intelligence and assertiveness, I like to share up front that I come from a more p- passive place. And this is what I've learned and I feel excited about it because I can see the difference in terms of the opportunities that it, that it creates um, and use it as kind of a connection point and think in that, you know, this might not always feel comfortable for you to get it. Mm-hmm. Love that. What book or books are you currently reading? Um, some David Sedaris. <laughs> Always a good choice. Um, yeah, I've got his uh, the diary, uh, which has included some of the the notes from 2020, which is interesting. Mm, great. Well, thank you, Megan. I really appreciate having you here today. It was even though we are so close, I feel like I learned more things about you and your work in the process, and you provided so much great stuff that I'm sure our listeners are going to. Um, are going to appreciate and definitely things for myself to reflect on as well. So thank you once again. Thanks, Cam. It's been a pleasure. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Storytelling with Heart podcast. Want to turn your thoughts into leadership and your ideas into words that make a difference? Find me and discover more free resources at www.camilledeputter.com. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to my email newsletter, where I share stories, free tools, and other storytelling guidance. And never forget, your story matters. Bye.